Hey, it's Iris Van Kirkhove. Every episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing someone doing cool things from the worlds of food and beverage, design, and culture. We hang out and chat in our Hong Kong studio, drink some sake, and at the end of the show, we play a little rapid-fire Q&A game. I'm here with Janice Lung-Hayes. Janice is a food writer based out of Hong Kong. She's written for local publications like South China Morning Post and Cathay Pacific's Discovery Magazine, as well as international publications like the New York Times, Monocle, Wall Street Journal, and Eater.com, just to name a few. She's also a social entrepreneur, having founded a farmer's market here in Hong Kong, as well as her food sustainability platform, Honestly Green. And as if that wasn't enough, she's also Senior Director of Little Adventures in Hong Kong, a tour company where she designs and leads custom food and culture experiences. Hi, Janice. Welcome to the show. Hi, Iris. I think there's only one way to start the show, and that's with a shot of sake. Sure. Bring it on. So today we're drinking Sunday's Nigori, which I need to open. (laughs) Should have thought this through. (laughs) Have you had this one before? I think I have, yeah. All right. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So I understand this isn't your first podcast. And I just listened to your interview on Food Blog Radio last week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is not my first time on a podcast. Yeah. So totally you're actually a seasoned that. radio and <laughs> podcast guest. But yeah, so can you tell us a bit about where you grew up uh, and how that shaped your taste and relationship to food? Uh, sure. Um, I was born in Hong Kong, um, but when I was three, we moved to Australia. And um, we moved first to Sydney, and then by the time I started primary school, we moved to Melbourne. And Melbourne is a fantastic restaurant city, um, and it's always had that reputation, especially within Australia. I think outside of Australia, people are just starting to recognize that. But um, when I was a kid, I wasn't really interested in food at all. Um, my mom has a million stories about how she forced me to eat, and I was just sitting at the dinner table, just kind of refusing to, to ingest anything because I thought it was a waste of time. And um, I was pretty into ballet. That has nothing to do with not wanting, liking food. It just means my head was somewhere else. Um, and then when I moved, then we moved back to Hong Kong and I was in uh, high school. And then I finished high school in Australia. And that was the first time I moved out of home. So when you move out of home, obviously, you got to learn how to cook, you got to learn how to feed yourself. So I started kind of looking at you know, what, well, what to eat. And also in Melbourne, there's an amazing, um, kind of food media scene. So, uh, there was, there still is a great, um, insert in the newspapers once a week. That's all about food and wine and industry movements. Um, and also like the magazines, the glossies are amazing in Australia. Um, the, the food ones and they kind of took food styling to like a new level. Um, and at that point, because I was just reading everything that kind of crossed my path, I... I thought, you know, what's so great about food? Why are people waxing lyrical over, you know, stuff we just eat? You know, it's what's so special. So I started, because of reading, I started reading reviews and then following the reviewer, basically, wherever he went. So if he went there one Tuesday, I'd be there on Thursday. 
And partially it was because I, I just want to see like what, if, who is this guy and what is he saying? Is it right? Like, do I agree? Um, and then afterwards, um, yeah, so I just, the more I did that, it was more kind of just to, it's like a teenage thing, you know, like what do these adults know about? Like what's so special about these fancy restaurants? And then I kind of started to love it. So that's, that's where I started. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I also understand that you studied linguistics. Mm. What did you think you were going to do career-wise when you were still in school? Well, so I did linguistics and French and then also um, a second degree in um, business, which I had no interest in at all, but I got in, so I did it. Um, so with linguistics, I was actually thinking about doing, like, being an academic. Um, my interests, my academic interests were in bilingualism, um, especially, like, in the social sphere, um, like, how bilingualism affects, like, how kids grow up. Like, what if they grow up in a family that isn't bilingual, and but the society is, or, you know, something like that. Um, so, yeah, so I thought I was going to be an academic. I did pretty well in school, but also at the end of it, my parents were like, well, if you want to do it, um, you can fund yourself. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to help you out anymore. So you can think about what you really want to do. So I, I didn't, I didn't know. So um, I just came back to Hong Kong where they were, and I just lived at home for a year and tried different like internships and went traveling and all of that. And that's uh, when I got a an internship at Lux City Guides, which is a travel guide company. Um, and it's actually headquartered in Hong Kong, even though they've got like 32 or 30 plus guides now every, to everywhere. Yeah. So that's how I got started in like working in media, in lifestyle media. I thought I was going to be an academic. Wow. <laughs> Well, then again, there's something very academic about what you do, so... Yeah, I, I do have that nerdy streak. Like, the things I tend to write more and more about are, like, food ways, almost like anthropological sort of, you know, stories of how did food become what we know as, you know, today. So, you know, I, I have a column at the South China Morning Post that um, allows me to kind of do a deep dive each week on um, Chinese, like, food of the Chinese diaspora. So, basically, things like, you know... Kung Pao chicken, you know, American style that has no citron pepper in it. It has nothing to do with the Kung Pao, um, any sort of Kung Pao in China. And they do have it. It's just a completely different dish. So I kind of went into you know, archives and, and looked at um, interviews and stuff and just tried to piece the story together. Um, so I find that really fun. Awesome. I want to talk a little bit about your food writing career in terms of the food blogging side. You've been doing it for a long time with your website, Eating. So that was kind of the beginning of the specifically food writing yeah, part of your career, right? I guess so. Like, So about around that time when I was just following reviewers around in Melbourne and eating, blogs started to become a thing. I'm really dating myself, but this is like around 2002. And I, and back then blogging, I mean, all the kids were doing it just because it was, you know, it was there and it was a new way of, um, you know, writing, basically like writing a diary. This is even before Facebook and all of that. So if you basically think about like the very beginning of the internet. So, or of the internet for most people. So I, yeah, because I was reading so many of these like really professional restaurant reviews, I started trying my hand at it as well. Um, so I was, I'm, 
I've always been really interested in like reading and writing, and and I think I sort of started by emulating the style of these very highly qualified and esteemed reviewers, and um, obviously like they were all train wrecks. Like I look back at them now, and I'm like, this is hor- it makes me cringe. Are it's they, horrible. Are they all still up? Yeah, like I tried to keep as many as I could up because blogging platforms have changed. So. Um, when I started, there was a platform called Zanga. Again, dating myself. But anyway, the, yeah, that's where I started. And I couldn't retrieve everything when they shut down, but I tried as much as possible to do that. So there, I think the earliest blog post I have now online is from 2004. Please don't go and read it. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I put it up there and I kept it live just as a reminder to myself. Like this is where, this is what it was like when I started and I was horrible and I was like snobby and judgmental and just wrong a lot of the time and I like that like I like to constantly remind myself that you know it's a it's a it's all about improving you know with time so yeah anyways that's how I started uh, with blogging it was just a writing experiment more than anything and then I when I got the internship at Lux um, I started doing travel writing professionally the blog is and always has been just a hobby I guess it didn't It gave me a place where I could just be myself, whereas if I'm writing for a particular publication, I'm writing for a particular, in a particular style, house style. And especially at Lux, it was um, a very, a very distinctive voice that was very fun, but not my own. So I think the the blog has always been a bit of an outlet for me. Uh, And I guess it's not really, for a lot of people, they think, oh, you start by being a blogger and then you become a, a professional writer. For me, it wasn't, it's never been that way. The blog, if anyone read my blog as a portfolio, they would never hire me. So I, you never like submitted that as like, oh, no, 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 not at all. Because because it is such an outlet, like I don't, I don't fact check it. I don't check my spelling. I write like exactly how I'm talking right now. So there's lots of ums and lots of tangents, huge tangents. Um, and I just let myself do it sometimes. Yeah. So at what point did you decide to freelance and become an independent writer? So I was in my fifth year at Lux and I had learned a great deal and the team was awesome. Um, uh, but around that time, I think it was South China Morning Post started to do a weekly insert, kind of like the Australian magazines of like just food and wine, and they needed freelancers. So at some point, I just got in touch. I can't even remember exactly how, but someone got in touch with me and asked me to pitch a couple of columns for this new, um, you know, this new section. So I did. And then when I when I realized that I could do it, then I thought, okay, well maybe. And I love food. By you know, by this point, food was like my life. So I thought, you know, I love the lifestyle. I love, uh, I love travel, but food, I think, should be my thing. And so after about five years at, at a, you know, a, a traditional sort of outlet, I thought, it's time for me to just see what I can do out, outside in the big bad world. And then if it fails, then I'll just go and find a job. And this is like my seventh year of freelancing. So it's been going okay so far, fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Um, And so now you've been published in several respected international publications. Did these opportunities sort of come about serendipitously or do you feel like it's something you really needed to hustle for? Um, It's strange. I think 
One thing that has been really helpful, strangely, is Twitter. Twitter still now or still back in the day? Back in the day, but now a little bit. Like to connect with people in the U.S. in particular, I find Twitter really helpful. I mean, in Asia, no one uses it basically. But yeah, people, and I think just with like SEO, if people Google um, my name, usually my Twitter account comes up as well. So I'm not super active on Twitter, but it's like it's a it's a way that a lot of people have contacted me like through. Yeah, strangely, it's been helpful. And I think they've, people have found me. I've been really lucky that way. And I think it was because I got into it pretty early and I made my niche very clear. Like it's food and I'm in Hong Kong and I'm Chinese. I can speak it. I can do the research. I can do the groundwork. Um, so that, I think that is still what a lot of outside editors, like outside of Hong Kong, um, look for me to do. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Cyrus, we're back and we're talking to Janice Long Hayes. I'm sure you've heard this before. You're seen as sort of the English language food writer in Hong Kong. I'm also sure you've heard that there's a lack of strong writers in general in Hong Kong, let alone people who can write about food. Why do you think that is? I think it's partially because the food scene has become so trendy so quickly, and a lot of people coming into sort of food writing or food media are doing it because they think it's cool. It's like you know, it's like fashion kids from the early you know two thousands. You know, everyone wants to write about fashion, and, and so now food's that that thing. So you get a lot of people who who just kind of. Dive in headfirst, and they love, you know, they love the restaurant opening parties. They love the tastings, and um, they love the Instagram attention they get from having a feed full of food. I would sort of say that that would be the reason. And in Hong Kong, um, there's never been, even in Chinese media, there's never been a strong culture of criticism. Like I don't mean like being mean about something, but just like food critique, restaurant critiques. Um, there's very little of that. If you look in Chinese. Media, it's all just recommendations, and they'll just go to any new restaurant and and take a bunch of really nice photos, and people will go to that restaurant whether it's good or not. I think there's a bit of yeah. So I think partial like those two things: the the existing Chinese culture, but also the the fact that food culture now is just way too hip for its own good. How do you think that's going to change? Like, is it going to improve in Hong Kong? Or it's hard to say, especially with English writing, because English is no longer an important language in Hong Kong. Dare I say, um, you know? And I think the the audience for English writing um, has really decreased. I mean, sure, you can have pe you have people overseas who want to read about it, but people who actually live in Hong Kong and and can make a living writing just in English is a bit difficult. Yeah. Uh, switching gears a little bit, 
Where did your passion for sustainability, specifically food sustainability, mm. come from? Well, because I just I always look for the most kind of delicious thing. It's like an it's like a nerdy obsession. I don't care how I get to it. I just want the most delicious thing. So, at some point, you've got to ask yourself, you know, why does this tomato, raw, undressed, even uncut, taste better than that one, also raw, undressed, uncut? And um, and then you start tracing, like, where does it come from? How did they grow it? Like, what was the rainfall at that time? And because I have this nature of just getting diving really deep and getting really nerdy about stuff, I started then reading a lot about agriculture. And then, and then there's so many, uh, like all the problems with it right now as well. Um, you know, monoculture is being dominant in our kind of industrialized society, um, and the lack of variety in, like, the biodive, lack of biodiversity in, in the world, um, and how that affects, like, the, we live in an ecosystem, like, we don't live in a vacuum. So everything, whatever, you can grow one thing, it'll affect, like, five other things. It'll affect the air, it'll affect birds, it'll affect the soil. And as I started to read more and more, I realized how important it was and how close we are to becoming extremely food insecure. Right now, even, like, you hear about, like, poverty in countries and they, they need food aid. And you think, oh, no, it's because, like, they're poor. But why? It's, you know, and there's all sorts of, like, agricultural issues as well. And so I just thought, you know, it's just something that I... The more I read, the more I find that there are such big systematic issues. And if I can do anything at all to change that so that we can have, we can all eat that delicious tomato. I mean, that's, that's my, that's kind of become one of my things. Can you tell us a little bit about the farmer's market you founded in Hong Kong, as well as your platform, Honestly Green? Uh, when I first started uh, the farmer's markets, um, it was one market in um, Quarry Bay, so the eastern part of Hong Kong Island, and it was called Island East Markets. And that was basically, I was doing research on a story about locavorism in Hong Kong because I had just been back from Noma. This is like 2011. And uh, I was like, well, I wonder if we have this in Hong Kong. Like, Because you look out in Hong Kong at the skyline and it's all just buildings. So you don't think there's going to be farms. Or, like, And I thought, do we grow anything at all? And I did find that we do grow some stuff and we have like a small group of very passionate organic local farmers. And then when I visited them, I realized that a lot of them were just starting out and they didn't really have a lot of places where they could actually sell their, uh, their, their produce. So I thought, how hard could it be to set up a farmer's market? All you need is some space, some tables and chairs, and maybe some umbrellas when it rains. So, you know, Hong Kong is not known for space. So little did I know how difficult it would be to find space to do this market and a, spa a, a place that was also, you know, convenient for people to get to. Because I know at the end of the day, people, like as much as they're well-meaning, People are, you know, they want convenience. They want to do good, but they also, you know, want it at their doorstep. So um, it took ages to find a spot. And then we found Tong Chong Street on, uh, in Taiku Place. And it's like a privately owned but public access road, which meant that I could just speak to the owners. And if I could convince the owners that we wanted, that, that we needed a market there, then, um, then we're good to go. And so it took a while and a bit of cold calling and like thicker and thicker skin, but we got there. Um, so we started Island East Markets in September of 2012. And then it went on for a few years. Um, at the beginning, because 
we were trying to, um, we incorporated all sorts of things like F&B and farmers and um, arts and crafts. So we really wanted that local scene. And I realized that in Australia, we have a lot of these um, just weekend markets and it's, there's this market culture, outdoor market culture. But in Hong Kong, apart from the really local markets, say, you know, in Shamshir Po or something, there's very few like outdoor local markets that really sold things that were from Hong Kong and made by people in Hong Kong. So we started there and then gradually um, we kind of fine-tuned it and then Swire, um, the, the company that owns that piece of land, decided to help us out. And and so we together rebranded the markets into Tong Chong Street Market, which is now very much an F&B focused market. As much as we love arts and crafts, we just couldn't, there were too many mixed messages and we didn't have enough space to really do what we wanted to do. So now we have a food focused market. Um, so that's the current iteration. And recently I also opened a little um, farmer's market, farmer's only market in Shenwan, um, working with a cafe called Tika. So we're just exploring more and more neighborhoods. And so it's one of my dreams to have a little farmer's market just in walking distance from every residential neighborhood. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Finally, tell us about your tour company. Little Adventures in Hong Kong is um, was founded by Dezan McLean, who is herself an amazing journalist. Um, she came out here um, around the Hanover. Um, she was she's from New York, but she learned to speak Cantonese while she was in New York, and then came to Hong Kong to conti- continue her studies and also. Back then, I think she was reporting for, I think, the New York Times. So she was reporting on the handover and everything. So then she sort of felt that there were more and more people calling her up and saying, hey, we're coming to Hong Kong. Can you take us around to, like, where's good to eat? And then some of them were professionals as well. Apart from, not that she didn't want to take these people around, but there were she had a lot of work to do as well. So she, when she heard that I had gone freelance, like we had met uh, probably a year before that, she asked me if I wanted to help her out and just take people on a real tour of Hong Kong and eat food that we really we really do eat on a daily basis and explain it to them as well so that they know what they're eating and why. That's basically what we do. Um, we find, well, especially I find, especially when I came back, first came back to Hong Kong, there were a lot of articles online about Hong Kong with just the same few restaurants and usually they were like 80% bad. And it was just someone who flew in a couple of days maybe in transit and just hit a few of the big like famous restaurants or a few that their friends happened to take them to and then they would leave so there's no they're not rooted in this culture they don't they didn't spend the time to understand uh, where we were coming from and what this was all about so that's that's that was a pet peeve of mine whenever I read something like that it just it just angered me so if I can do something to change that then yeah that's basically what why I do the tours what sort of reactions do you get like when you take someone to have like I don't know like a Cha Chan Ting mm-hmm. local breakfast or mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, fish ball yeah. noodle um, soup. I guess with like Cha Chan Ting with that sort of east-west sort of thing, it, I mean, it, I always put it in the context of our history. Um, Cha Chan Ting is a very distinct culture that you won't find in any other you know, in, in with that throughout China, because most of Cantonese food is from Canton or Guangdong. And but Hong Kong, in Hong Kong, we mostly eat that. 
but the only distinct, really different thing we have is Tatanteng. So yeah, I always explain it within the context of the history of Hong Kong, and I think it makes people appreciate it more. And and things and things find like people find these things really funny, like you know putting um, sweetened condensed milk on toast, you know, and using it like a jam. Like for some people, that's like that's crazy, but it's but it tastes crazy good too. And and just explaining it to them, like you know, it came in cans and it could last forever, and that's why that's why it's at these restaurants and things like that. Yeah. So what's next for you? Gosh, I don't know. Um, I'm I'm just constantly working on the projects that we were just talking about. Again, I just want to work on like really making local produce accessible to people and really helping that industry to you know increase quality and in- lower the prices. And you know we really need the volume to get that going. So that's pretty much like that's a huge project. But I'll, I'll keep working on it probably till the day I die. Um, and uh, and then with writing, I think more and more. I'm I'm shying away from listicles, things like that, because I really want I just really want to know more about the culture of the food and not just whether it's it tastes good or not. I mean it's important, of course. We we all like to eat and it's yeah. But yeah, so wherever I go now, because I'm I tend to travel quite a bit now, and wherever I go, one thing I'm always interested in is what like the Chinese people are doing there. I think the older I get, the more interested I am in my own roots. So it's just interesting to see what, how other Chinese people got to where, wherever I was going and, um, and what they did there and what their food was like. Cause that tells you a lot, um, about the history of the place as well. Yeah. I mean, what am I not doing? I'm just, <laughs> I'm doing way too much. Um, and I'm just starting, a. a platform in China, like mainland China, to um, talk more about like food issues, uh, sustainability, and kind of the appreciation of food, I guess, because China is really opening up. The people there are often, as everyone knows, have a lot of money to spend, but they don't always know what they're spending it on and how they're spending it. So hopefully, um, I just want to drive that sort of the ethics of eating a little um, and see where we go from there. Awesome. Excited for you. (laughs) Thanks. So, are you ready for a little rapid-fire drinking game? All right. I'm just going to take a sip to... Prepare yourself. Get me going. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, (laughs) basically, you have to answer right away. Okay. Then you're safe. If you hesitate for more than, let's say, like, one second... Okay. Then you drink. All right. Okay. So, we'll start with the easy ones. Mm -hmm. Wine or cocktails? Wine iPhone camera or DSLR? iPhone camera. Music or podcasts? Podcasts. Good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Coffee or milk tea? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) They're both good because coffee, I was addicted to coffee for a long time, but addicted in a bad way and also in a good way. Um, So I've just kind of got rid of that addiction so I yeah that's why I hesitated but milk tea is like so Hong Kong and it's like I'm very Hong Kong as well so yeah okay (laughs) your first online alias or screen name before eating um it was eating oh really that was the first one okay fair enough favorite food publication that's too hard (laughs) (laughs) that was a tough one yeah I'll drink I'll drink to that (laughs) Mm -hmm. can't pick one Really can't pick one. Like, um, let's see. 
I guess for me, it's still Australian gourmet traveler because that's kind of the first food glossy I ever saw. And it's still doing so great. They're still doing amazing things and they're still pushing the envelope. And it's just, it doesn't get old. Like, you know, it's really sad to see U.S. publications, um, you know, just shut, like food, like gourmet shut down mm-hmm. and like Lucky Peach as well, which was new and then just kind of, you know, died recently. Um, RIP. So the, yeah, so it's just nice to see that there's this strong, really good quality magazine and they're constantly innovating. They're keeping us on our toes and, and each issue is just really exciting. And to me, Australian food culture and food media is miles, I mean, I'm sorry to say, but I think it's miles ahead of the U.S. in terms of the maturity of it and, and the, the boldness to kind of get away from clickbait. Yeah. For sure. A dish you can never get right in the kitchen. Okay, in the kitchen. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm I'm a staunch recipe follower, so I yeah I'm I'm okay. Like if I can, if there's a good recipe, I'll follow it to the T, and it'll I'll, it'll turn out every time. So yeah. Okay, if someone has never had Hong Kong or Cantonese food in their life and have no concept of it, what three places in Hong Kong would you bring them to, and why? Okay, so I would take them to a roast beets place. Um, so probably. Cam's roast goose for that. And then I would take them to a cha tan tang, um, probably hoi on in Shangwan's, like a fifties place. And then Kin's Kitchen, which is a restaurant in Wan Chai. They do sort of, um, not just like, old school Cantonese, they actually do a lot of village cuisine. And I find that they, they work really hard to find, um, hard to find ingredients. And they, they're really kind of, they try to do that farm to table thing. Right. What are you up to when you're not eating, working or reading? Listening to podcasts. Seriously, I consume a lot of podcasts, um, mostly because like if I'm on traffic, like on, in tra- on transport, then I don't, I can't read because I'll get car sick. So um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, like from news to science to food, obviously, and TV. I watch a lot of TV too much for my own good. Okay. <laughs> Would you rather not eat a vegetable for one year or be a vegetarian for three years? Vegetarian for three years. Would you rather be itchy for the rest of your life or sticky for the rest of your life? Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> um, <Drew. laughs> um, probably sticky. Would you rather drink two liters of Coke, like back to back, or eat an entire chocolate cake? Entire chocolate cake. Like for sure, <laughs> I would probably enjoy like half the chocolate cake, whereas I will enjoy none of the Coke. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> All right, and finally, describe yourself in three words only. Tedious, um, addicted to TV, (laughs) Um, and always hungry. I feel like that was more than three words. Yeah, that's way too many words. It's okay. So for those who want to find out a bit more about what you do and your different projects, where can they follow you online? Um, so you can fa- find me at E underscore T-I-N-G, so E-Ting, on Twitter, Instagram. I'm also that on Facebook, actually, yeah. And um, my blog is e-tingfood.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Janice. Thanks for having me.